Amen. I like to look around and see who's here, see what's going on. Everybody doing all right? Man, if you can't feel the Holy Spirit in this place, your wood's all wet. That's all I've got to say. Because he's about to put it all on fire, I I guarantee it. You know, what a blessing it is to uh, be able to sing praises to the Lord and um, just to to know that uh, the the Lord inhabits the praises of his people. And um, this morning we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, and if you have your scripture and want to open up to that, we'll get to it in just a moment. Do you know, today we live in a day when uh, Bible doctrine is sometimes scorned, even among God's people. I've heard people say things like this, we want life, not doctrine, as if the two were in opposition to each other. And I remember hearing a young lady describing the wonderful thing about her experience-oriented church was that they didn't have any doctrines, they just had Jesus. And, um, you know, I, I think that Christian people proclaim that, that doctrine is divisive and what we need is unity. And... Um, Often that unity is built on a, on a common experience that maybe some people have had, uh, supposedly through the Holy Spirit, even though those uh, people often hold to serious, erroneous, I want to say doctrine. And uh, sometimes we th- tend to think of theology as, you know, being impractical or academic stuff that uh, seminary professors and, and, and students uh, like to debate But wrongly, we think that it doesn't have anything to do with how we live. And it has everything to do with how we live. See, when we buy into this anti-intellectual approach to the Christian life, we're forgetting that the Apostle Paul did not, he did not write his profound doctrinal section of scripture to theologians. He didn't write it to those who were book smart, if you will. Paul wrote Romans, he wrote Galatians, and the other great theological portions of his letters, including our text today, which is one of the most profound Christological sections of of Scripture. But he wrote these portions, these letters, to common people. Paul wrote them to common people, business people, working people, soldiers, housewives, even slaves, to help them so that they could live their daily lives in a manner that was pleasing to God. See, it's significant that Paul is not using our text that we read today to combat some kind of heresy or some theological error. Paul was writing about how Christians can get along with each other. Seems pretty basic. How Christians can get along with one another. See, and, and that applies to how we relate to one another in our church, but also in our homes. And, and I think this is huge. To live in harmony, to live in a cohesive harmony, we have to learn to, to die to self to put ourselves down and and, and put ourselves on the lower uh, pole here and humbly live for others for Jesus' sake. I mean, to illustrate this point, Paul, he he sets before us the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he, He puts him before us as the example 
of supreme humility. We think about Jesus, name above all names, and he sets him forth as the supreme example of humility. See, solid theological understanding about Jesus Christ is the foundation for how we get along with one another. See, Paul is saying this. He's saying to promote healthy relationships, we must grow in the humility Jesus modeled in his incarnation, in his body, and in his death. I mean, this is big stuff because we don't like to model humility most of the time. I remember working as an executive chef and sometimes our resort manager, he would uh, send out a memo and then announce a required department meeting. And, and you know, it's uh, my natural response when somebody says that it's required is probably going to be something like, well, I probably won't be there. Okay. If it's required. And, and you think about that and I, I, you know, if, if he had said something like, we'd like to see you come to this meeting, I, I probably would have gone. But once he said it was required, in my mind, my attitude was kind of like, that ain't happening. But you know what? We're all like that. We're all like that. We have stubborn hearts that resist authority. We don't like anybody telling us what to do. And the barrier that stands in our way to obedience is inside of us. It's nothing out here that is keeping us from being obedient to the Lord. It's right here. It's in our hearts. What does it mean for us to be Christ-like? What does it mean for me to be Christ-like? You know, to think like Christ, to act like Christ, to respond like Christ, to walk like Christ, even to talk like Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be Christ-like? See, that ought to be the one of the ultimate consuming desires of our life is that whatever we do and whatever we say would be Christ-like, that we would reflect Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, I want to read verses 5 down through 11, and if you have your scripture and would read along with me. This is what God's word says. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Verse seven, but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow for those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Loving Father, I thank you for your word. And I pray that you would just open our hearts and minds, that we would see uh, your Holy Spirit, that we would see uh, the Lord Jesus, uh, Father, that, that he would come into clear focus. And as we, as we pray, as we think, as we, as we listen, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would, would take us where you want us to be. Father, we lift up the, the needs that are represented in this room today. I pray, Father, that you would provide whatever need is needed. And God, that you would be glorified in that. Father, we recognize that you could do above and beyond anything we could possibly think or ask. And so, Father, we ask, knowing that you are more than able. Guide us as we study your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You know, in our passage today, Paul illustrates how we can be like Jesus, and he gives us basically an overview of of, uh, Christ's life. And I I want you to notice a few things here. I want you to notice the nature of Christ's obedience here in in verse 5 through 7. I mean, it says, have this attitude in yourself, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, the form of a bondservant being made in the likeness of men. So here's here what Paul is saying. Even though Jesus is God, even though he is God, even though all the power, the privilege, the honor of the office is his, he set that aside He didn't stop being God. He just refused to draw upon his privileges. He could have called on angels to help as he's walking this earth. He could have called on angels to help, but he didn't. He could have struck his accusers down with one word, but he didn't. He refused what was rightfully his so that he could become like you and me, a human being. But not only that, then he willingly became a man who died a horrible death for the purpose of giving his life as a payment for our sin. God gave himself so that those who hated and rebelled against him could actually find new life. See, the nature of Christ's obedience was voluntary. This is key. One of the themes in this passage is that he he humbled himself. In other words, the obedience of Christ going to the cross was not an enforced obedience. He willingly went to the cross. Yes, it's true that what he did was necessary to redeem fallen humanity, but Jesus willingly laid down his life. Willingly laid down his life. In fact, he himself said in John chapter 10, verse 18, 
He said, no one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from the Father. See, he voluntarily laid his life down in obedience and I think that's, that's big because we see the extent here of, of Christ's obedience, which ultimately led him to death. He gave his life. Jesus did not come primarily to teach about the way of salvation, although he did teach that, but that was not his ultimate mission. Jesus did not come to demonstrate a godly life, although in every way and in every circumstance, he lived a godly life. But that was not primarily why he came. You see, Jesus came to be obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He was obedient to the Father. You know, Philip Yancey, he explained it this way. He says, talking about the incarnation of Jesus coming in the flesh, He said he learned about the incarnation when he learned how to keep a a saltwater aquarium. He said, think about this, management of of a marine aquarium is no easy task. He had to to run the portable chemical laboratory to monitor the nitrates and the the ammonia levels. He, He pumped vitamins in there and antibiotics and sulfa drugs. And he says enough enzymes to make a rock grow, okay? He filtered the water through fiber, glass fibers and, and, and uh, uh, charcoal and, and he exposed it to UV light. He felt like his fish should be grateful for his work on their behalf. But not so. Every time his shadow loomed over the tank, they dove for cover trying to get, in, get away and get to the nearest shell. And they, they showed him only one emotion And that was fear. Although he opened the lid and dropped food and fed them regularly, they they responded to each visit as a sure sign that torture was coming to them. And he couldn't convince them of his true concern. To his fish, he was deity. He was too large for them, his actions too incomprehensible. His acts of mercy they saw as cruelty. His attempts at healing they viewed as destruction. To change their perceptions, he began to see it would require a form of incarnation. He would probably have to become a fish and speak to them in their language that they could understand. But you know what? A human being becoming a fish is nothing compared to God becoming a man. When we think about that and try and wrap our mind around that, he understands our pain because he has experienced it. I mean, there's some great implications here of God becoming a man. He understands our pain because he experienced it. He comforts our fears and he's confronted them and overcame them. He's faced our temptations and gained victory. And he's not some distant ruler that's detached in a palace somewhere. He's here with us. Emmanuel, God with us. Folks, he has not abandoned us. God has not abandoned you. He has not abandoned me. No matter how we feel, no matter what's going on, 
God has not abandoned us. You know, Steve Brown, he wrote, (laughs) I thought this was funny, he was driving home the other day and he saw the ugliest car he had ever seen. And, and he said, this car wasn't just ugly, it was ugly on top of ugly. And it had this large gash down the side and one of the doors was, was, was held together with baling wire. And several other body parts were almost completely rusted out. And the car's muffler was so loose that every time you'd go over a little bump, the, the muffler would hit the pavement and sparks would go in every direction. Some of you probably remember cars like that, I do. He said, I couldn't tell the original color of the car. The rust had eaten away much of the paint, so much that the car had been painted over with so many different colors that any one of them or none of them could have been the original color. But the most interesting thing that he said he saw about this car was the bumper sticker. It said, this is not an abandoned car. This is not an abandoned car. Even though the car looked horrible, even though it looked worthless, the owner wanted to declare the simple truth that the car was his and that he valued it. But listen, this is what God has done for us at Easter. Okay? He takes those of us who are broken. He takes those of us who are rebellious and and wounded and scared. And he places a banner over us that reads, this is not an abandoned, forgotten, or rejected person. This person belongs to me and I care about them. See, in sending Christ to earth, God declared that we are valuable to him. And he demonstrated his commitment to us even when we weren't committed to him. And we go back to the Philippians 2 and talking about the sacrifice of of Christ's obedience. It says, even death, death on a cross. And there's a few things that we need to understand about death on the cross. I mean, you think about this. Jesus died a horrible death 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 on a cross as you hung up there stripped down beaten and bloodied as he hung there it was a matter of disgust it was a matter of disgrace and really the death on the cross is kind of that that final you know, ultimate death and disgrace. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 22 and 23 says, if a man has committed a sin worthy of death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who has, who is hanged is accursed of God so that you do not defile your land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. It was considered the ultimate and final disgrace. And here's why, a person that is hanged on a tree, a person that is hanged on a cross, is under God's judgment. I mean, we stand condemned by God under the curse of the law. But Jesus died a horrible death an awful way to die 
in order to pay the price that we owed. Jesus died a shameful death. I mean, to the Roman mind, okay, to the Roman mind, the concept of death of Christ, of Messiah, on the cross was an insult. What kind of Messiah dies on the cross? They don't get it. It's foolishness. He died a shameful death. In 1 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 23, it says this, it says, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. I mean, how could anyone, including the Son of God, be put to open shame by death on the cross if truly he is the Messiah? And that's what they're thinking. Oh, he's the king of the Jews. Oh, he's going to be the dead king of the Jews. They beat him. They hung him on the cross. And what we preach to the world is total foolishness in the world's eyes. That's what it says in verse 18 of of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. It says, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, to those who are dying, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is his power that kept Jesus on the cross. He died a shameful death. He he was under judgment, God's judgment. And when you preach Christ crucified and raised to an unbelieving world, it's often received as foolishness. Oh, you believe that? Oh, oh, you're one of those. Yeah, you believe that. To those of us who have experienced in a very personal way, the foolishness of preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, him crucified, Jesus is for us the power of God. In, in his weakness, in that we see the strength of almighty God. I love this. In Romans 1 verse 16 it says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Oh man, he is the power. He is the one. He died a shameful death. He died a painful death. And the obedience which Christ demonstrated on the cross was the obedience that cost him something. It cost him the agony and the pain of crucifixion. I'm going to tell you right now, not many of us would be able to endure what Jesus endured. The strength that it took to hang and die on that cross for your sin and mine. See, all we need to do is read the gospel accounts and we understand the pain and agony of Jesus' death. Being whipped, being scourged, nailed by his hands and his feet to the cross with thorns, piercing his brow and his forehead, hanging for hours, left to die, stripped down, in humiliation that's your king that's your messiah but you see Jesus died a vicarious death 
When Jesus died, he took my sins, he took your sins, and he endured the curse of Almighty God upon him for our benefit. He paid the punishment, we received the benefit and the prize. Romans 5, verses 6 and following, it says this. It says, for while we were still helpless, while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we should be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. He did this for you, he did this for me, even when we were hopeless, even when we didn't love him, he died and bled out for you and me and for our sin. I mean, this is what the word vicarious means. When Jesus died, he died so that I might know and experience the power of God for salvation. So that I could know the righteousness of God. So that I could know the forgiveness of God. So that I could know what being justified by Almighty God looks like. So that I could know the redemption of God and the, the forgiveness and, and, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He did all of this as he hung there on the cross for you and for me. As Isaac Watts, the hymn writer, puts it, he said, love so amazing, love so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. You know, if you're experiencing friction in any of your relationships, whether at home or at work or anywhere, chances are (laughs) you need to grow in humility. C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, pride, hear that word, pride, has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Pride always means hostility. It is hostility. And not only hostility between people, but hostility toward God. Listen, in God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. And unless you know God as that and therefore you know yourself as nothing in comparison to God, you don't know God at all. God hates pride. His scripture says it over and over and over. And as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. We must humble ourselves. But the fact is, is that we fight pride all of our lives. 
You know, going back a little ways, in, eight, in 1985, uh, there was a Spanish bullfighter, and he made a tragic mistake. He, he thrust his sword for a final time into the bull, and, and it collapsed, and thinking that the bull was dead, he turned around to, to the crowd to acknowledge their applause. But the bull was not dead. It jumped up, and it lunged at him, the back of this unsuspecting matador and through his back he pierced his heart with his horns see pride is like that just when we think we've conquered it and just when we accept the congratulations of the crowd pride stabs us in the back and it won't be dead before we are see we have to fight it by focusing on what the Savior did for you and me, by leaving the glory of heaven and coming down to earth to die for your sins and for mine. I want to say, have that same attitude in you that was also in Christ Jesus, that he humbled himself. See, that's the way toward harmony in the church and in the home. I want us to submit ourselves to his will. And ask him to give us that same attitude of humility. I've got another story I want to tell you as I wrap this up. And I'm going to invite our worship team to come back up here. There was a fellow by the name of Eric Johnston. And he was an esteemed man uh, from Hollywood. He actually did, was the president of the Motion uh, Picture Association of America. And... Um, he originally wanted to devote his career to the Marines, and um, he had fought uh, with valor, and, and uh, during uh, the conflict, he sustained a, a career-ending injury, and so he returned home to civilian life, and he took a job selling vacuum cleaners in Spokane, Washington. For many hours every day, he lugged his sample vacuum cleaner up and down the streets, giving demonstrations and trying to make a sale. But after three weeks of hitting the pavement and working hard, he hadn't had a single success. And in his mind, he imagined his friends were probably saying, too bad about Eric, isn't it? He's just not cut out to be a salesman. And Eric himself was beginning to agree with them, but somehow, he just couldn't believe that there wasn't some family in Spokane that needed a vacuum cleaner. So he kept at it. Then one day, it happened. He'd been, he'd been selling and selling and selling, and one day, it happened. He sold a vacuum cleaner. Oh man, he was excited. He went home jubilant. And going home, he was reviewing in his mind the appointment and, and what happened and, and what he said and, and what 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 they talked about and, and, and what, what they did and how that was different from his other appointments. And he became more confident in his selling ability and during the next several days, he sold seven more vacuum cleaners. He later wrote out the lesson that he had learned. He wrote this, he said, no is not an answer. It's merely a resounding challenge. See, I tell you about Eric to encourage you. I want you to invite people 
to come to church with you during this Easter season as we celebrate Easter. I want you to invite them to to come to the Easter service and also the, the following outdoor service. Invite one person after another. Ask God to put some people on your heart and keep asking them. Review your techniques. Keep trying more and more effective in the way that you share, the way that you invite. I want to say keep a little list. Let's see if we can't have a full house for Easter. Because I want to tell you something. If we invite enough people, some will come. And if enough come, some may be saved. Don't take no. Take it as a resounding challenge and continue to invite, continue to welcome people to come and worship our King, our Lord, Jesus Christ. Folks, he is worthy of all the praise we can give him. I've been praying recently for a revival a renewal, a spiritual awakening to happen here among us. But it's going to start with humility, having the same attitude that was in Christ. Didn't count himself as nothing. He was just fully obedient to what God was asking him to do. That's my prayer for each one of you, that you would be fully obedient to what God is asking you to do. Would you pray with me? Loving Father, we thank you. We thank you for the gospel. Father, that changes our lives. It transforms who we are. Lord Jesus, you did what you did on that cross.